McFly? Sid Walker. Sid, right. Um, who really doesn't want to go back to her small town in Oklahoma, but feels that she has to. So why don't you set up the story for us? Absolutely. I, I do love a story where your past comes calling and you have to return to the one place you never wanted to go. Um, so... Blood Sisters is a story of Sid Walker, and she is an archaeologist for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She is Cherokee from northeastern Oklahoma, just like me. Um, and an ID badge, an old ID badge, is found in some remains near a crime scene that she just barely escaped as a girl. And that crime has haunted her her whole life when a friend was murdered. Um, and so once that badge is found, she has to come home. And while she's there, she finds out that her sister, who's had some drug problems um, and has gone missing. And so Sid is very determined to make sure her sister is not another missing and murdered indigenous woman statistic. And she'll do whatever it takes, come hell or high water, to find her sister. And so it's really that story of sisterhood and also justice. So you made her an archaeologist because that gives her some professional expertise, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, archaeology and particularly within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So for those who aren't familiar with the, what's called the BIA, they've had a really um, difficult uh, relationship with tri tribal nations, even though their job is sort of to manage the land and um, the relationships there. And through the decades, there's been... Um, I mean, even some illegal activities. Um, and in the case of my book, it's kind of highlights some of the things that have been done where land is taken from the tribes, land that's valuable with minerals in it. Um, and it's the money is then taken by the BIA and put into what's called in trust. And the tribes don't get any of that money. But Sid sort of has a foot in both worlds. So she works for the BIA. And certainly these days, you know, that's not as much the case, but there's an understandable distrust. Um, but she is Cherokee. And the reason she is an archaeologist is because she believes in supporting tribes. And archaeology is much more than what we would think with Indiana Jones, which of course, that's who we think of. He's like the most famous archaeologist in the world. But it's really about um, cultural preservation and supporting tribes and not only making sure that sacred grave sites or um, artifacts and things are kept where they're supposed to be kept, but it's really preserving their own culture and identity. And an archaeologist is kind of on the ground and able to cultivate those relationships. And so when I did an interview to prepare for this and doing research with an archaeologist, the way that she spoke of her job and she sort of saw herself as that middle person to help support tribes in a government structure, I thought that's what I want my character to be. I want her to have a foot in both worlds. And and also archaeology is really interesting. I loved reading about it. There's several kind of memoirs and things. And um, and I, I loved learning about it. So I very, and a lot of people have been excited. They're like, oh, an archaeologist. I'm like, I know, it's a, kind of a cool job. It's a very cool job. You know, it's interesting because um, years ago when I taught crime fiction at ASU, I had some Navajo students in my class. I think there were four or five. And one of the things that we did, because ASU has a really great um, anthropology, archaeology department, and so I thought, you know, we would all go down there and, you know, they would show us whatever, this was in the 90s, but whatever forensic anthropology stuff was going on. And then I realized that my five Navajo students couldn't go. They are not able to see bones. They are not, you know, it's a cultural thing where the Navajo avoid all of that. Or it so, could be their ancestors on shelves well, in university exactly. systems. So I had to come yeah. up with, you know, some other field trip for them. And so I found it interesting that, you know, um, Sid doesn't, 
that's not apparently a Cherokee taboo. No, not, as it is a Navajo taboo. Yeah, not not that I've heard of, and and certainly the there are many archaeologists within BIA who are affiliated with different tribes. Um, right. Yeah. So you know, just cultural appropriation is another thing that you know we. Have, I mean, there's this whole horrible statistical thing with missing indigenous women, but also um, like the Smithsonian along with many other museums, is being called to account for, you know, cultural appropriation. Have you been to the Heard Museum here? I haven't. Have you, if any of you, are you familiar with the Heard Museum? It's a, it's a stunning museum, basically, of um, uh, various tribes. Um, lots of Navajo, lots of Hopi. Well, actually, not lots of Hopi, because the Hopi don't uh, want any of their um, art or whatever, um, yeah, there was a guy named Jake Page who wrote three books about the Hopi, and it was really dangerous. There were death threats. Do you remember if you lived here, the Arizona Republic had a whole thing? About, I own all three of them. I kept them in my library at home. But it, he broke all these taboos by actually writing about the Hopi gods, you know, the Kachinas. Oh, wow. Uh, but the Heard Museum has an astonishing collection, um, and it's kind of separated here by, what's it, various tribes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah Okay, and they have, you know, fabulous baskets, and they have, uh, but they have an extensive Kachina collection, and um, and they sell beautiful Native jewelry, Native-made jewelry in their gift shop and the whole bit, so it might be worth going to. Absolutely, yeah. On another time. The other thing I found interesting about the Cherokee is that there has been this whole thing going on in Oklahoma about the Supreme Court, you know. Absolutely. It, it's causing a, a gigantic law enforcement issue because, well, you, 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 you probably and know I'm, more about I'm not it an expert on it at all, but the Magritte um, Supreme Court decision essentially returned tribal lands to the management of the tribes, which, you know, is certainly a good thing and a thing that needed to happen. But there's some pretty natural, I think, growing pains associated with it. Um, and and just legally, I was actually just talking to a tribal lawyer um, two days ago. Just legally, it's hard. Anytime you have a new area of law, um, there's just there's going to be a lot of growing pains. And, you know, I think there's these sort of these examples in the media of like people not getting speeding tickets because they're members of the tribe or things like that. And that's fine. But I think, it, you know, at the end of the day, we do need to be asking questions about what does returning this kind of tribal sovereignty look like. Right. And it's, and we're not going to do it because it's easy and we're not going to do it because it's a clean process. But I think, you know, in this case, there is a lot of land owed that should be returned and managed, um, particularly in places like um, where Blood Sisters is set. I mean, Pitcher, Oklahoma is in northeastern Oklahoma. It was Quapaw land. And when it was taken over by the BIA and um, really Congress actually even passed an act helping um, them steal it from the Quapaw tribe. And then they let um, mining companies come in. This is in the early 1900s. And there was absolutely no rules and regulations. They came in, they made billions of dollars, produced um, over half the bullets that were used in the world wars. Um, you know, it went from a tiny little thousand person community to almost 20,000 people almost overnight. And then when it went bust in the 60s, all those businesses pulled out without an interest, of course, in the community. And so all of the mines, you know, because to get lead out of the earth, you got to dig under it. These huge caverns and thousands of miles underneath the grounds of tunnels suddenly flooded with water. And it became what the EPA called one of the most toxic places in America. It was one of the earliest EPA Superfund sites, in fact. Yep. And, um, and the people then in that community were stuck. 
And some of them want it to be. It's the place they've lived for generations. But other people, especially as they started to see things like lead poisoning and what it does to children, developmental delays, kidney disease. I mean, we have our per capita of dialysis centers in northeastern Oklahoma. There's just a lot of very serious health issues. So when the story is set, it's actually in 2008 because that was a big turning point for that community. There was, for the first time, a federal buyout program of the homes. So all the people in the community are being asked to leave this place and there's a monetary value being put on their home, which they generally don't agree with. Mm -hmm. And then they have to try to find another home and it's very contentious. There's a committee that oversees this process and no one's happy about it. Um, and then in the midst of this, there's a big increase in methamphetamine production, which all of this is based on real research. As a reader, my favorite thing is when you're reading something and you love it, and then you go look it up and find out that it's true. And so the characters are not true because I don't want to get sued. But all of the research um, and all of the history of the town, I mean, I grew up there and I went back with that writer lens perspective to learn about it. All of that is true. If there's any aspect that's kind of interesting to you, then I think you'll be able to research it and, you know, and find out more about it. Um, and so all of those aspects were in there and that environmental piece was, was big. And it, and it ended up, I just was driving actually through picture yesterday. Um, and it's a ghost town. Now the Quapaw tribe does have the land. Again, there's some kind of fire vehicle, you know, things there, but no one can live there. The land is completely ruined and toxic and dangerous. It was, you know, small towns are, 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 are a natural setting for mystery stories. Um, well, there are plenty of urban ones too, but small towns, you know, have like long histories, long secrets, and people know each other in a way that often urban communities mm -hmm. don't. Um, and so I was very taken with your portrait of the, of this town that's undergone that. But I was also thinking, you know, geography has so much to do with it. I mean, we have a reservation right over here on the edge of Scottsdale and they have their own police mm -hmm. and, you know, the Scottsdale police and the reservation police. What, what tribe is it, Patrick? The right out here? The Pima, isn't it? Is that the Salt River Pima? Right. Um, and there was what? There was a really dramatic chase. Do you remember that a while back? Where I can't remember whether the guy was, uh, he was fleeing or something. Anyway, and he would dodge into the reservation and the Scottsdale police couldn't find him. And it just, you know, illustrated these jurisdictional problems that if you have different, um, you know, authorities in charge. Right. And, the, and that's part of the kind of issue around missing and murdered indigenous women is that, you know, when someone does go missing, who do you call? Right. And if something happened over there, you know, you don't call the Scottsdale police, even though maybe they're equipped to provide support in some tribal communities. I don't know in this case, but in some tribal communities, they don't always have enough authority, especially if it's like a kidnapping or something like that. That's a very serious investigation. So then it's, you got to call in the FBI. Well, let me tell you what the FBI doesn't care about. It's missing girls and women. It's got to have drugs involved to get them involved, especially when this is set in 2008. Yeah, but kidnapping is a federal crime. So, but it, but it depends if the, if it's a girl who has a record, if it's a family that has a reputation, it's, you know, and it's, they're not there right away. It's 28, it's 48, it's a week before they get out there. Mm -hmm. And we all know those are the, those early hours are some of the most important. Um, and so there's a lot of community, you know, oh, they're just missing, you know, they, they're not believed even. And so I think that's part of the crisis is jurisdiction, but also just people being believed um, in these cases. So Sid is in Rhode Island leading her best life, and um, suddenly she has to go back to Oklahoma. Um, how did you, 
why is she in Rhode Island? Why did you put, I mean, you live in Rhode That's Island. That's where I so live, I yeah. I already know the answer. Right? Write what you know. <laughs> but, I, but I didn't know that when I when I read the book because yes. she could have been living. Anyway, the point was she lived away. She sure did. Yeah, she created um, something I learned in my 30s, I'm in my 40s now, was this idea of boundaries. Um that you can set boundaries with people and you can set physical and you can set emotional boundaries. And for Sid as a character, I decided that she had created both physical and emotional boundaries with her sister who has a pretty serious drug problem. And it just kind of got to be too much. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think boundaries are important and that's not to say you shouldn't keep them. But I think in Sid's case, this story is a little bit of her learning to lift those boundaries and let people back in, especially when they can prove themselves to you. And so she has created this geographic, boundary of being kind of across the country. And she's also on Narragansett native land and where I live on Narragansett land. So I wanted to kind of incorporate the place that I live and, and mostly wrote this book. Um, and the sequel will be all in um, Narragansett land in Rhode Island um, as well. But for me, I you know knew that I wanted to write an Oklahoma book. It was where I'm from and it's the story I wanted to tell. And particularly for the first book, you know, being Cherokee, I wanted to go back to the place um, where I was raised and even my main character, her last name is Walker. And that's the name of my ancestor who was on the trail of tears, George Washington Walker. So I gave her that last name. And in the book, there's also a family cemetery, the Walker family cemetery, which is a real place. It's part of our allotment land. All of my mom's side family have been buried there. And so, so much about indigenous um, culture is um, the fight against erasure. And so for me to use the real places, to use real language, um, to use real names really felt important um, because it sort of is that mantra that so many tribes say, which is we are still here. And it was sort of that reminder. I was um, signing books early and I was sharing that um, I got picked for this Target book club and I had to sign 6,000 pages for it. And even though that's a lot, I knew that on every page I would write Wado, which means thank you in Cherokee, because I was not going to miss the opportunity to have a Cherokee word in 6,000 homes. And all the books I signed for you tonight also, I signed Wado, because it's important to me that that language live on, because there was a time when they tried to stop it. Well, that was not just Cherokee, but... Oh, all know. language, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, actually, we have a Canadian with us tonight. The Canadian with um, First Nations history in children is pretty terrible uh, yeah right here and we have indian school is right over here you know yeah, so. the residential schools right. there's a lot of um i think in canada they have a, the phrase truth and reconciliation because there is so much um trauma on both sides of the border absolutely right. but you know what's interesting is that the cherokee are actually not native to oklahoma absolutely they not. are native to north carolina when i used to live in virginia and, and go over to north carolina i've been to the pageant at um the, you know, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but anyway, it's the whole Trail of Tears mm. pageant that they conduct there to mm. tell you about what happened. So you might, do you all know about what happened to the Cherokee? Yeah. The right. And why they're in Oklahoma? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they actually had to take land from other tribes in Oklahoma and give them to the Cherokee. So in a way, mm -hmm. the Cherokee were sort of unwelcome and unwitting colonists, weren't they? Uh, well, they were forced there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, you know. I wouldn't say they took it because they were at gunpoint, but, you know, there's a different, like, but it, what, like, Osage were all up in that land. I mean, there were uh, several other tribes. And in northeastern Oklahoma in particular, they crowded nine tribes in that corner um, and tribes that had never lived near each other before and had their very own language and culture and things. But that's the point, right? They didn't want them to get along, right? They didn't want them to thrive and succeed. Um, and in my family's case, we were... Um, 
my side was outside of um, Nashville. And then th we were marched um, to the kind of like an encampment. I don't, it's interesting what people picture when they picture the Trail of Tears, but picture soldiers with guns and people just holding, people who had homes and businesses and communities that they had lived in for generation after generation just being taken out of their home and left everything behind. Um, and your homes and businesses were then taken by white people and colonizers that take over what you had. And then you're, they were put into almost what you could think of like a cattle pen. And there they had to survive. And I was actually just reading, a, a, there's all the different stories of, you know, the different marches. There was, wasn't just one, there were many. And, um, and I believe it was the one that my family was on. There was something like, I think there were like 30 births and 55 deaths, you know? So it wasn't just a day. It was months, and it wasn't that life stopped. It was that there were children born on the trail. That was true of all the people who went west. If you look at the wagon trains and all, you know, mm -hmm. babies were born, people died. Exactly, um, yeah. You know, I mean, it was a big movement without a kind of transportation that, you know, was safe. Right. But, of course, if you're in a wagon, you're choosing versus, you know, being taken from your home and having to leave everything well, behind, which I'm is a very... Sure that everybody on wagon trains, the women... <laughs> I don't know that all the women were choosing. Well, that's probably true, too. Yeah, yeah, they probably, some of them were forced. But at least then you had, you know, things to take with you. And, I mean, for some people, right. you know, you were lucky if you even had shoes, at, you know, and that's why so many people died on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, there was a horrendous, I'm trying to remember, what's the Navajo one where they were forced to, was the Canyon de Chez? The Long Walk, is yeah. that what it's called? And that, you know, it was mm -hmm. yet another Almost every example. tribe has a Trail of Tears. Yeah. I mean, I think the Cherokee sort of, that name is known. It's, you know, but every tribe. It was one of the longest. I think that might be part of it. It's a long way from North Carolina to Oklahoma if you're right. walking. So Yeah, and it, and it was also such a clear, I mean, the Supreme Court ruled that it was illegal. Right. And Andrew Jackson still did it anyway with, you know, the use of his army. It was also sort of just a kind of a flagrant you know, abuse of power. Right. So that I think also kind of made it maybe more infamous. True. But what, what you have here is a, is a novel with a narration. And so it's actually not about history. Or no, it's a thriller. Yes, I don't know. I was going to say, it's that's not all a, in the background. Yeah. No, you're going to start reading and be like, wait a second. I thought I was going to learn about the Trail of Tears. Why, why are there just those like killers with shotguns in the trailer coming after these girls? What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's possible to write a really good story that still has, if not an agenda, has founded on, you know, based on real things. Absolutely. And um, and should make us aware. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons to read crime fiction is that you get to learn stuff that, you know, you might not necessarily learn. And it's more palatable if it's in a story than if you're reading it in a newspaper. No offense there, Christina, but if you're reading it <laughs> in journalism, it's not quite the same. So Christina's our local NPR reporter, so... Um, yeah. And a budding novelist. Yeah. Did you have to unlearn things in order to write a book? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot, but still, it's an interesting question. <laughs> okay, there you are. Because it's a it's a different it's a different um, oh, process. Journalism. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know. That's right. That's so, are you envisioning this? I think you already said you were. This is the start of a series. Yes. Sid Walker continues. Um, when I had created this, I you know, made a character who had my kind of similar background. And then I was hopeful that then I could kind of move forward and then not just always be in a Cherokee community or a Quapaw community in this case too, um, but go to other tribal communities, mm -hmm. but sort of within my experience. And then 
um, you know, kind of elevate those issues. So right now I'm, I'm working on a book that's set um, in Rhode Island, which is mostly the federally recognized tribe there is the Narragansett tribe. There's other tribes, but, um, and, you know, they were there when the first boats came over. I mean, that tribe has been there since the very beginning of colonialism. And New England is certainly the heart of colonialism. And so um, for me, um, I'm just really interested in what that was and what that meant and then sort of what the modern implications are today. So I'm, I've written a draft and I think it'll be more like a 2025, but I'm really excited about it. And I've been lucky to connect with the Narragansett tribe and some folks there. And um, actually the word powwow is a Narragansett word and they have the, the oldest continuously recorded powwow. Um, it's almost, I think, 360 years now they've had this, um, they call it their August meeting. Um, and I've been a couple times and I'm just doing my best to hopefully um, kind of do right by the tribe and sharing what feels, you know, appropriate. Um, that's not a Narragansett story per se, but, you know, the tribe is front and center and there's a, a lot of issues that just like with this book, I think people will, it'll resonate with people even in their own communities. You know, you don't have to be from Northeastern Oklahoma to understand what environmental justice is or missing and murdered issues. And um, I'm finding very similar threads like that um, with the sequel. So I'm, I'm excited about it. So if you are going to avoid the difficulty of a police procedural where jurisdiction, I mean, you can't be a cop anywhere other than, you know, where your own jurisdiction is. It's a good thing to have somebody like an archaeologist or an anthropologist who is sort of like quasi or at mm -hmm. least professionally mm -hmm. qualified to assist the law, but therefore can move around. Aaron Elkins wrote an amazing series for forever about an um, anthropologist called a forensic anthropologist called Gideon Oliver, mm. and he went everywhere. The second book, called The Dark Places, was one of our bestsellers forever in the 90s, and it took place in the Olympic rainforest. And it was about the last boy from one of the tribes. He was the last living member, oh. and he was living wild in the Olympic rainforest. It was a terrific book. Oh, wow. But the advantage to that was that Gideon could go, just mm -hmm. like you're talking about yeah. Sid, um, you know, wherever his expertise was yes. was called. Exactly. So when remains are found and they need an expert, particularly within the BIA system, because people do travel or get assigned yeah. different places because they are often short staffed. So she can hopefully go to lots of different communities and, you know, raise issues there. So here's an idea for you. There was an, I don't remember, it was, I think it was in the New York Times, might have been in the Post. But anyway, the homeless being, you know, increasing are taking to camping on BIA land or um, federal, you know, um, parks and so forth. And the question is, there, there are lots of difficulties involved in that. And the more remotely they go to live, the farther they are from any sort of emergency mm. or support systems and so forth. But then what are the responsibilities of the rangers if it's in a park or what are the responsibilities of whoever's managing the land mm -hmm. to deal with people who are, and it's an, apparently an increasing problem. And we you know we just cleaned um, out the downtown Phoenix, the camp, whatever it's called, the zone, sorry. Uh, we had a, a many blocks, I think it was at least eight of um, people who were camping basically in downtown Phoenix. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they survived the summer. I mean, it was 119. Oh. I have no idea what they were how they were surviving. But anyway, where did they go? Where is the, you know, that's the question. Mm -hmm. hmm? That's what I yeah. Well, where, and I think it, I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that there is in fact a great deal of BIA land mm -hmm. or, you know, mm -hmm. national parks are probably 
not ideal because there are they too do. many people in national parks who will see them. Yeah. They, there's some regulation too, usually right. um, depending. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see how tribal communities approach but that's it. A, that's mm -hmm. a conceivable yeah, something. Yeah, absolutely. People come here for plots. I know. Yeah. I, I love that idea. I know, absolutely. It's a great it, idea. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly very topical. Yeah. Um, oh, so absolutely. There's lots of, lots of things that, you know, you can write about. But, yeah. Right. So do any of you have questions? I know that, you know, you guys may have come armed with questions. So speak up. Hi. Buried at Luna's grave. Oh. Um, Another missing girl or do they just take it? Um, so the... Good question. It's a spoiler, um, but it's right. Also, I'll maybe tell you after. <laughs> that is a good. That is a that is a good. But it's a good question. It's just a spoiler. There's so much history, and then just so much like process involved in her job and stuff. So, because clearly you love research. How did you figure out what to put in and what to leave out? Was it a kill you every day or? Yeah, sometimes I, I start out overriding a little bit and then I give it some time to breathe. And I'm actually a very impatient reader. I don't, um, so when I then have let it breathe a little bit, I'll go back and read it. And when I find myself getting bored or anxious while I'm reading, I know I need to cut. Um, so I sort of rely a little less on my writer lens and more as a reader. Um, sometimes I'll load my books into my Kindle and try to pretend like it's not even my, my, my words and read it that way. And like I said, I'm just a really impatient reader. So I, if I'm getting bored, I know that I need to do some work. She's not alone in that, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell us about writer's lens. You've referred to that at least twice in this conversation. What do you mean by writer's lens? I guess it's sort of um, how I view things in a way that I want to communicate with other people. Um, for me, writing is usually whatever issues are like hot and burning in front of me. And I just want to tell people about them, but I want to do it in a thriller because that's all I read. And so for me, it's the most pressing issues that I'm dying to explain. And the sort of writer lens is, okay, I know you're really interested in environmental injustice, but that's boring if you're writing about it. So how do you write about it in a way that's engaging? Like, how do you set the plot up to be compelling? Like, where do you put twists in that indicate how you feel about things, but at the same time, they're twists and they're interesting. So I kind of have to think about it from that perspective versus my reader view, which as a hat we're all familiar with, and that's a completely different experience. It's a, how's this going? And do I like the characters and what's happening in the plot? And is this slow? So I kind of approach it from different directions. So when you say thriller, how are you defining thriller? Oh, uh, well, it's actually, that's not a thriller. It's, I guess, a suspense maybe. Um, I mean, I think, it doesn't feel like a mystery to me. I think suspense is what I've been saying for the most part. And then I kind of also say thriller because that's sort of a shorthand, I think, for a page turner. Genre is hard. Well, I, I actually don't care about genre, but <laughs> since you've been mentioning thriller, yeah. I think I do think an, an essential ingredient of a thriller is pace. Mm -hmm. If it isn't moving, then, you know, it's yeah. it's really it's not murder at the vicarage where we're all, you know, and I love murder at the vicarage. I really do. Uh, but, you know, the pace is slow and we're having tea and we're talking over secrets <laughs> in the village. It's the only funny Agatha Christie. I think is one reason I love it. So um, so a thriller, you know, implies, I think, that 
the story's going to move quickly. That, to me, is really... And you need... You really need an antagonist. The best thrillers rise and fall on the question of, yeah. of the bad guy there's more some, than the good guy. There's some pretty mean bad guys in this, and they're a little bit based on real people. Um, yeah. The There's a... The opening um, scene is also based on kind of a real crime that happened um, in a nearby town where I grew up. Um, in 1999, it was right after my senior year of high school, three men invaded a home and stole two girls out of it, murdered one of the girl's parents and set the trailer on fire. And um, while the trailer was on fire and everything, the local police came and said that the dad who they didn't know but he was dead in that house um because he had a drug record you know he probably just ran off with those girls and they don't need to look for evidence and they don't need to ask around he's gonna come back with them and so a whole night went of those girls gone with these three awful men and doing we later learn god knows what and the next day the family goes back and they're looking through the burnt trailer and they find the bodies of these two people and they realize that these girls have been taken. The evidence was never collected. So there's a book called Hell in the Heartland by Jax Miller. And that's what, if you're interested in that case, she wrote a great book about it. But for me, I've just watched that um, as the families have searched since 1999 to bring those girls home and bury their bodies. And there's just nothing worse that you can imagine as a parent or a person. Um, and so for me, just watching it through the decades, I had a lot of anger um, and the sense of injustice that I wanted to, again, communicate in a way that was compelling. Um, but just last week, I was home reading an article and the family was in picture and they'd gotten a tip that maybe the girls had been buried in this house and they had a digging equipment out and they didn't find them. And it's just, you know, heartbreaking. And it is indicative of what is happening, particularly around the missing and murdered indigenous women where it's families aren't believed and cases go cold. And it's just them every day posting on social media, looking for tips, you know, these moms going to, in this case, they would go and talk to drug dealers and I mean, just putting themselves in danger to try to find information to, you know, bring their girls home. And so for me, that was a real case and a real example that I really kind of channeled into this book. Um, and then the bad guys in this are loosely based on the real bad guys who did that terrible crime. You know, it's interesting that the whole sort of crowdsourcing investigations, the true crime podcasting, everybody getting involved in it has leading to solutions to more to more crimes yeah. with more eyes on it and more evidence being gathered. What do you think the effect of the um, was it Killers of the Flower Moon? Do you think that that is, you know, bringing more attention to all of this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what? So, in Killers of the Flower Moon, I mean, the I'm going to turn the air conditioning off. The um, crazy. Excuse you know, me. the issue was that the oil or headrights of the Osage tribe were being stolen in that community, um, and you know, that the atrocity of that crime led to like the birth of the FBI. So I do think. There are many people who didn't quite realize that things got that dark when it came to tribal rights. And it's interesting because when I was doing research for Blood Sisters, I was um, talking to a, an incredible local environmentalist in my community. Her name's Rebecca Jim, and she is Cherokee. And she was just saying that the Osage and the head rights is very similar to some 
traditions with the Cherokee and their grasslands. And then in Pitcher, where this is set, it was the Quapaw tribe and the mineral rights. And even though the Quapaw weren't murdered overnight like the Osage were, they did destroy the town and killed the people in the end. And so it, it is a pattern that we see. And so Killers of the Flower Moon is wonderful because it sheds light on something that has been happening in many communities. And it's not the only community, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, it is powerful. And certainly to see the Osage, you know, their language, which was, you know, almost erased suddenly on the big screen in a Martin Scorsese film and all the wonderful Osage actors. And, you know, it seems like they have a lot of community pride around that. So that's great as well. Well, I mean, it was a bestseller and, you know, it had a tremendous reach as a book, but there's, it's never going to have, the book is not going to have the same reach as Martin Scorsese as, right. as a movie or a TV or whatever, it, which is it? I can't even remember. It's a movie. It is a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, once that happens, it tends to, bring a cluster of similar stories. Every time there's some enormous success as a book or a movie, then we get other people who think, oh, there's a good idea. And we are living in such an exciting time for indigenous voices right now. Mm -hmm. um, thank God. I mean, because, you know, when you think about publishing, the way I think of it is like a, a long table. It's not that long of a table, but it's a long table. And there's just so many seats at that table. And for so long, the indigenous voices that were shared were people who were white sitting in those seats sharing indigenous voices. Voices, but now that's slowly changing and the people who are those voices are the actual people and they're getting to share those stories. Right. Well, that's it. They, they recast Tony Hillerman's books, you know, with, mm -hmm. with native actors, indigenous yeah. actors and um, Robert Redford and George R. R. Martin, in fact, sort of financed, you know, rebooting it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's great. It's a great show. I, I really enjoy I really it. I really enjoyed yeah. it too, you yep. know, but I think it's, it would be difficult, I think, for Tony to publish The Blessing Away today mm, yeah. as a as a white Santa Fe yeah, sure. reporter, um, yeah. uh, even though he lived in Oklahoma and he had, you know, mm -hmm. lots of connections. Sure. He wasn't actually Navajo. I mean, so he, he probably gets. still could, let's be honest. I'm sure he still could get it published probably today. But I think that now we are living in a time, thankfully, when there mm -hmm. are, you know, lots of storytellers who are indigenous that are able to step forward and I don't know if you've read Never Whistle at Night, but it's an indigenous anthology. Mm -hmm. And there are 28, you know, voices. Well, we've had, we just sold out of it again. Yes, I know. No. It's been an indie bestseller. It's incredible. Yeah. But half, I think it was something like, as part of that anthology, you know, when they did the call for it, um, they said, let's get a lot of people who've never been published before. No, I think it's and wonderful. And so almost half the We had Ramona Emerson here doing, you oh, know, yeah. a contemporary Navajo story. Um year ago, I think it was a year ago, January, something like that. And David, who's, I never can remember all four names. David uh, Hesco, Hesco Winobly, Wyden. You. Yes, yeah. I know it. I always get it wrong. Counts. Loved, yeah. loved, you yeah. know, his And Deborah's here. Right. Eastern Band Cherokee. That's right. I didn't know that, Deborah. Right. And you have, your book was out in September. Yeah. Right. I had no idea that you were actually Cherokee. No, uh, my, that was my question. Can I ask a question? Of course. So, so I'm uh, Eastern Band Cherokee. My mother's people are from Western North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So her people probably hid. Yeah. Or, or, or a lot of people were able to escape on the trail too. There's, yeah. you know. Very true. Yeah. So that, yeah, the heart of the Smoky Mountains. Mm -hmm. So when I did my first series took place there mm -hmm. in Bryson City mm -hmm. and going back and doing the research, it's like nothing ever changed, mm -hmm. you know, even 30 years later. What, what was it like the research going back for you? I know that you said it back 
you know, back in time. Let's yeah, say. yeah. Was it um, was it a readjustment that you had to? Oh, remember ab back absolutely. Then? Yeah, because when you live in a place, and as a child, I had much different memories than as an adult doing research. I mean, so picture something really interesting about it is it sort of looks like the surface of the moon because as part of the mining, there's um, chipped rock or like mine tailings is what they call it, but they're huge. And my mom says, in fact, when she was a little girl they look like mountains in the distance. And today they're still very, very large. And you can, and I remember as a kid, you'd take a piece of cardboard and you'd slide down it and God knows it's full of lead and it's terrible, but boy, it was fun, right? And, or we went to like, they'd have high school parties out there or whatever, you know? So my memories often are of it in more of a nostalgic way. But of course, as an adult, when you look back and think, God, what if you had to raise your children in a place that has lead poisoning in the air and in the water? And, um, and, you know, through the years I did do different, um, actually in college and stuff, research projects because pitcher is such a kind of part of where I'm from. And so I had at least somewhat of a knowledge, but now going back and thinking about particularly where this is set, which is 2008, which is a big tipping point, you know, what would it have really been like for the people who lived there? Like the community, you know, not just maybe a science paper I wrote in college or not as a kid who had fun going down a shot pile, but like, what's it really like to be a parent and knowing that your home and the place that you raised your child is dangerous and that you expose them to that. Like, what's that feel like? And, and then for people to come in and say, oh, your house is not worth what you say it is. And you to think, what am I even going to do with this money? And where am I even going to be able to afford to build, to have, buy another house? Like, there's just some problems that I wouldn't have seen, you know, at those ages. Um, and as an adult now with a family, you know, I would just really felt for the people in that community. I love it. Um, so what was your most difficult part in writing this book? And then what was, I don't know, the least difficult or the more, the least painful part? Um, well, the most fun I had was there's a character named Raina and she's a crazy cousin. And I loved writing her. I mean, first of all, Cherokees are funny and Okies are funny. So there's a lot of humor in this book because that's important to me. Um, my dad's really funny. He's not Cherokee, but he is an Okie. And um, humor is important. So Raina was a funny character and she's kind of the wild cousin who, you know, has maybe been to prison. And she's like the cool one who you always want to hang out with, who's always listened to good music and knew everything she wasn't supposed to know. So I had a blast writing her. And she was kind of like a breath of fresh air and kind of an intense um, story. Um, something that was hard for me to figure out, um, is a character in here that's called ghost Luna. And, um, basically my main character has a lot of trauma because her friend was murdered. Um, and she saved her sister and not her friend. And for me to write about trauma, um, I wanted to sort of articulate it in a way, like for a while it was like a panic attack for her. She was like having panic attacks and like that wasn't really working. And I talked to my editor about it. And we were discussing like, how else can we communicate trauma? And I thought, well, this is a little different, but not for indigenous literature, but there's, what if we made a ghost? And what if her trauma is like a ghost? Because honestly, I think that is kind of what trauma is. It follows us around like a ghost, maybe our whole lives. And so I created Ghost Luna, who was sort of this teenage remembrance of the friend who died to follow her around from time to time, especially during times of stress. Um, and was also kind of a petulant teenager, like popping her gum and another kind of break. But 
figuring that out and also kind of trusting myself to do that because it's a little different um, was was scary. And often I find when I'm scared or I have like a lot of anxiety, it usually means it's something I need to do. But it just takes me a little while to finally get to the place where I'm like, okay, this is going to be hard or I'm putting myself out there a little bit. But this is the right thing to do kind of creatively from a, a writing perspective. Has anybody read it who, who actually like lived during that time? You know what I mean? Was, that oh, in, oh, in 2008? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, um, well, the... I just had a book event. I feel like most of the people just got it in my town. So I'll probably hear a lot more soon. I have read a couple reviews of people, you know, sort of just saying they remember this or they remember that. Um, I mean, a lot of the history is really based on like news coverage and things. So I, I don't know. I, I think it, it's possible. Maybe some people might feel a certain way about it, but I do feel like I was pretty fair because um, there just were a lot of sides to it. And it's really, it's still a very raw issue in the community. I mean, I mean, 2008 really wasn't that long ago. And, um, you know, there's still some pain around it. So, Patrick, anything from you? Yeah, so the um, the story is set in northeastern Oklahoma, right in the very corner on that um, kind of Kansas-Missouri border. And so there's the biggest town in Ottawa County is Miami, and it's spelled like Miami, Florida, but pronounced Miami, and I'm from that town. It's about 11,000 people. And that one town, basically, or two towns barely over, is Pitcher. And so I grew up right next to Pitcher. And Miami is in this book. Um, and I would say it's maybe a little hard on Miami people, myself included, because it's a little bit of a judgment on people. I mean, I feel like we look down on people from Pitcher. Um, in fact, there's a term chat rat, which is what people will call people from Pitcher. Um, but that felt really justified to me because, you know, looking back, it wasn't a kind thing to do and it wasn't very nice. Um, and so I did write from a perspective of a person who really lived there and remembered how it was. But yeah, it's all northeastern Oklahoma where I'm from. And I really loved writing about the place I'm from. I wrote it mostly during the pandemic and it's the longest I've ever been away from Oklahoma. I wasn't able to go home and see my family. So it did feel really nice to kind of go back, even if it wasn't actually go back, but in my mind and memory and, um, and tell people, you know, about the place I'm from. Um, college. And I kind of, I was one of those kids that always wanted to move away. I really was. And Sid, my character has that as well, but for her, I pushed it pretty far. For me, it wasn't anything in particular. I just wanted to see other places. And I think for her, it is a chip on her shoulder and it's actually, she feels a lot of guilt around it. Um, and so I did kind of write that into her cause I, I knew at least from the perspective of, do people think it's a judgment because I left a place and I could push that even further, like in her character development. Well, thank you online audience. That was really interesting. I want to thank all of you for coming this evening. Let's give our author a round of applause. Thank you guys. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.